Isn't that Oriotego song that we sang a moment ago? Come, Lord Jesus. I'll tell you, it's a great Advent song, but it's a great song. It's a great prayer, isn't it? And I was so proud of Fred. After all of these weeks, uh, we finally departed from uh, liturgy and took it a little Baptist spontaneity. (laughs) We're making progress, and it's over. Making progress, and it's over. Good to see all of you this morning. When we, when we talk about the birth of Christ and we come to Matthew, we come to the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, now this is the way the birth of Christ came about. But, you know, Matthew, if you know that passage, 17 verses ahead of 18, he deals with 42 generations from Abraham to the coming of Christ. When you think about genealogy, you go, oh my goodness, that's boring. But one Christmas, what I did, I took, I took the genealogy. I, took, I started where Matthew started, which is the preamble to now this is how Jesus' birth came about. And I traced through some of the characters in the genealogy to see how God worked in their lives or some of the things that we might learn from their lives that would apply to ours. I call the series The Amazing Trace. Sort of built it off of the, the TV, you know, the special Amazing Race. But I called it The Amazing Trace and took it through some of the key characters of that passage. And what we did as a visible prop, we didn't have the globe as we had last Sunday. The visible prop for that series was a dinner table. And we invited the characters, their families or whatever to the dinner table to see how things were, how it interacted or what the point was of what we were trying to share that day out of their lives and out of their experiences. Today I want to select two of them and share them with you and see what God may say to us. The first one's Jacob. The second one will be David. And when we dealt with Jacob, we set a table and called it the table of discord and ruptured relationships. Interesting. But you know, when families get together at Christmas, it can be very interesting. In fact, there are people that dread it. There are some that are very anxious about it because of what they think could happen. As somebody said, you know, every family wants to be a Honda family, but they're not all in one accord. And so... Sometimes when you get together at Christmas and for the holidays, it's a, it's a difficult time. In the best of situations, you may have to adjust a little bit or bite your tongue because um, there are different ways that we do things. We may have siblings, but when we were raised in the same home, and despite that, we are very, very different. And so the way you raise your children may be different than the way the brother or the sister or somebody else that's there raises theirs. Then you've got church, church affiliations. How well does that go sometimes? And if you get serious about it, maybe you'll talk about theology. That's when it really gets heated. Or what about politics? I remember when I was a kid, I went to my grandparents on my daddy's side, and Granddaddy Poplin was a Democrat. As my mother once said, he's a hot-headed Democrat. But anyway, he was a Democrat. 
my, one of my aunts was uh, an old maid, and she, she finally had gotten married. And she married a colonel in the army who served under Eisenhower. And he was a Republican. To this day, I can still hear the arguments that were taking place in that home before we sat down to have Christmas dinner. What about money? Who makes more relatively? Or how do you spend it? How do you use it? All of that stuff is potential for fireworks. And, and you throw in the in-laws and then to make things even worse, it could be some unresolved conflict from the past as you grew up. You've never dealt with that. And so there's always the possibility of conflict surfacing or resurfacing. <laughs> you may want to go in and check where the place guards are so you'll see who you're sitting next to. If it's applicable, how are we going to deal with those situations when it comes to this year? And it's interesting that there's a person by the name of Jacob in the genealogical line of the Christ of Christmas who dealt with the same problem. Jacob is coming home. He's coming home for the holidays, let's say, and he had to face his brother Esau. You remember the story? They were twins. One was favored and the favorite of mom. The other was the favorite of dad. There was this issue with birthright and um, Esau gave it up for a bowl of soup. He was very ambivalent about it. But when it came to the final blessing that Jacob finagled, when he put on the hair and when he put on clothes that smelt like the woods, and the blind, almost blind Isaac blessed him instead of Esau. Esau said, one day soon, I will be mourning the death of my dad. And after that, I'm going to kill Jacob. That's the conflict. That's the setting. And so Jacob fled. He goes to his uncle's house for 20 years. They have not seen each other. They have not spoken to each other. And now Jacob is coming home. He packs up the family. He packs up everything that he has. And off he goes to meet Esau. The night before he met Esau, he, for safety reasons and security reasons, he put his family over here. And then he crossed the brook Jabbok and he went over here by himself. And the Bible says that he was alone. And what happened that night changed what might have happened later with, with Esau. The scripture says that he wrestled with a man all night until the daybreak. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passage of mystery because it said that he wrestled with a man till daybreak and yet the voice that he wrestled with, the person that he wrestled with said, you have wrestled not only with God, but also man. And then when he comes to name the place, he will say, I have seen God face to face and have survived. I have seen God face to face and I have lived. Mystery? Yes in the passage, but no mystery about the outcome of what took place. Jacob became a changed man 
in that place, and he called it Peniel. I have seen the face of God, and I have survived. What happened? What was taking place there? What took place at Peniel is that God dealt with the Jacob in Jacob. And it took all night to do it. They struggled through the night up till daybreak. He dealt with the Jacob and Jacob. And at the conclusion of the struggle, instead of getting a blessing from the trickery that was earlier, and you have to remember that Jacob's name means heel holder. They were twins. He came second and he was holding the heel of Esau. He is a tripper. He is a trickster, and his whole life had been that way. But now instead of being blessed because of trickery, he is blessed because he is a changed man. And he said to the one with whom he was wrestling, I will not turn you loose until you bless me. And the one he was wrestling with wrenched the socket of his hip, and for thereafter, you always had Jacob walking with a limp. He got a new name that night, which is indicative of a nature change in Scripture. No longer will you be called Jacob the trickster. No longer will you call Jacob the tripper. Now you will be called Jacob Israel. God strives, God rules. He not only had a new name, but his name was also what would be used of the nation itself, Israel. And when he met Esau the next day, he was a different man than the one earlier, the one that he knew when he grew up. <clears throat> Changed. The Lord said, and you find it in Genesis when Rebekah was pregnant with the two boys, he said, there are two nations within your womb, and the older will serve the younger. And when he received the blessing from Isaac, one line of the, of the blessing said, to Jacob, your brothers will bow to you. And after Peniel, as he approaches Esau, the scripture says that Jacob bowed seven times as he approached his brother. And he called him my Lord. The younger over the older. Or now has it changed because of the humility of this man. And he walked with a limp. And I think Esau was ready for reconciliation, but he was unarmed when he saw the humility of a man who had been different, changed, and he comes and he bows and he, he refers to him as my Lord and he's got a limp. And the scripture says he ran and the two of them embraced and the two of them hugged. When you read the text, Jacob links the issue at Peniel with this experience, and he says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. 
the struggle with God substituted for the one that he feared with his brother Esau. So what lesson do you draw from that? Here is is a potential crisis. Here is a potential place of discord and disruption. What do we take for that as we gather for the holidays? If any of us, because of who's coming and because of the dynamics of the situation, if any of us believe there could be any potential conflict or disruption, what we need to do is go to our own personal penile before we ever get there. And what we need to do is allow God to deal with the Jacob in us. And let me tell you folks, we all have Jacob in us. There are things in our lives that need to be wrestled with. And God has the answer and God has the solution. You know, there there are things that you cannot control about other people, and there are things you can never determine what they are going to let God do in their lives. But we can determine what we will do, and we certainly can be open to what God wants to do in our lives. He turned to Jacob into Israel. He brought two brothers together who were disrupted in their relationship, one saying, I will kill the other to an embrace. How? Because Jacob went to his own personal penile and he wrestled with the Lord all night and God dealt with the Jacob in him and he was a different man. No longer will I call you trickster, but I will call you Israel. There's a second character that I'll mention, David. And when we dealt with David, we talked about the potential at the kids' table. You remember the kids' table, or you have one? You know, that's when when the family's gotten big enough, or the children have had enough children, that now you got too many for the adult table, so you put some at the children's table, and that's where you don't have the china, and you don't have the china, and the... uh, uh, porcelain and all of the dentalware fine. You may have Melmac or you may have plastic or something else, but that's where you put the kids. I sat there with my cousins for years. And uh, recently we've had to sort of do a kid's table. It can be a card table or a smaller table or whatever, but you put some at the kid's table. That's where we find David. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul whom I've rejected? Fill your horn with oil and go and anoint the one that I have chosen. And you're going to have dinner at Jesse's house in Bethlehem. It was a cover. Didn't want Saul to know that he was going to anoint anybody. So there's this sacrifice in this setting, and so he goes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And there's the family gathered before him. Whom will the Lord choose? And they start with Eliab. There's seven boys, and they must have been impressive because Samuel was impressed. In fact, he thought he had chosen the right one from the outset. The Lord said, not that one, not that one. 
Not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Not that one. Went through seven. And he looked at Jesse and he said, do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, yes, I have another. He's at the kids' table. He's the youngest. He's out keeping the sheep. He's saddled with the low tasks. Would you go get him? And so he brought in David. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. Jesse is shocked. Samuel is shocked. The brothers are shocked. But God has made his choice. It's, it's amazing to me when I read the scripture that when God is ready to act, so many times he always starts with the kids' table. You notice that? When he needed a redeemer for his people that had been in bondage for 400 years, he started with the kids' table. There was a little floating ark in the, in the Nile. In fact, when you come to this Samuel, when he needed a prophet judge, here is a desperate time in the history of Israel. It, it's, it's the time of the judges when the scripture says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. When he needed a man of leadership and character and integrity, a Samuel who would have a ministry of 40 years, he went to the kids' table and he picks Hannah's little boy. When he needed an everlasting covenant with a line that would lead all the way to Jesus Christ, he went to the kids' table and David was anointed. When he needed a forerunner for his son, he went to the kids' table, didn't he? And when he was ready to bring a Savior into the world, he hung a star over the cradle of Bethlehem. That's just the way he works. You know, God not only traces Christmas through the kids' table, but he, he always used the kids' table to give us powerful lessons. One of the, most, the greatest teachings in Scripture is, is on the kingdom. And he, and he taught us about entrance into the kingdom, and he taught us about position and greatness in the kingdom. When he put a child in their midst, he would teach them about these crucial things like the kingdom, the entrance into the kingdom. He said, you've got to be like this child. He didn't mean you had to become the age of the child. He didn't mean that you had to, you had to be like the child. He said, I want you to have the heart of the child. Children are not sinless. But they're humble. <clears throat> they're dependent. They're trusting. You know, in my ministry, I always had the opportunity to, to work with children when it came to the time of their decisions to receive Christ or come into the kingdom. Parents would bring me children or I would find myself in other situations where I would deal with children. You know, 
whenever I dealt with a child when it came to the spiritual decisions and decisions about the Lord, I never dealt with pride. I don't remember dealing with a child and dealing with pride. I dealt with pride when it came to adults. I never dealt with the merit of works. Oh, you ought to hear what I've done, Pastor. Okay, tell me all about it. Never dealt with materialism. Never dealt with skepticism. They didn't tell me how many hypocrites were in the church. That never happened with a kid. They're so open. They're so humble. They're so trusting. Several years ago I had the opportunity to be in Africa for three weeks and preach and they, believe it or not, it was interesting. I, I had revivals at night in churches, but during the day they wanted me to preach in, in schools. And I would get in a truck with uh, three or four of these guys that did the music. <clears throat> they, they were in the back and I was in the cab section. And we would go down these roads in the mountains of Tanzania. There was nothing, no, nothing paved. And when I got there, these black guys that were doing the singing were white <clears throat> from the dust it must have been at least a foot deep in every road. And we would go to the schools. And as we went to a school that was appointed to us, headmasters from other schools would stand at the juncture of the roads and beg us to come and preach to their students. I have never had a situation like that in my life, especially coming from America. But I'd go and preach in those schools and they would get all the kids together in the biggest room they had and there they sat on a, on a floor of mud or f- dirt with no shoes on and I would preach to them. And they wanted an invitation given and the, and the, the actual the teachers were there with pads in their hand and pencils. They were going to record the name of every student who made a decision and follow up. And so I would give the invitation and they would start crawling over each other by the scores to come forward. And so I would say, stop, go back, let's do this again. And I would try my best to carefully explain the gospel and tell them, don't come unless this is what you intend to do and want to do. And then they would come again. Openness, trusting, dependent. Nobody's, nobody is going to enter the kingdom unless he's willing to sit at the kids' table. But Jesus also sat one in the midst and talked about greatness. He said, you've got to humble yourself like a child to be great in the kingdom. I've met a lot of people who thought they were great in the kingdom, but they weren't. Not according to God's standard. He said, it takes the humility and the position of a child to be great in the kingdom. You ever notice that the child is he's more excited about the messy job than anything else? That's when we balk. We don't want to do the little things. We want to be the, the big cheese. But the child is ready to do the menial and the mundane. 
And the scripture says that we need to have the heart of the child if we ever become great in the kingdom of God. And folks, that's where we will go if we ever need to come back in repentance. How many times I've read the scripture and thought, David is a man after God's own heart? And he's a murderer and an adulterer? I don't understand this. Then I realized that he was always willing to come back to the kids' table. And in his confession and in his repentance in Psalm 51, he said, Oh God, you do not despise a contrite and repentant heart. He always knew how to come back to the kids' table. Parents, there are parents here this morning, and I want to speak to you a minute. It is so easy to get lost in the physical demands of raising children. (laughs) There's washing, ironing, drying, homework, cooking, taxing all over the city. Sometimes it seems so mundane. I want to tell you there is a saline side to it. There is an investment spiritually in those children. And what I, <clears throat> what I would say to every parent that is here today is this. Raise your children in the anticipation of a Jesse moment. One of these days, God's going to call them to himself. He's going to choose them for a task. He's going to glorify himself through them. You might have a little bit of shock, and others around you may have a little bit of shock, but I would say make sure you, as you do the mundane, understand the sublime and raise your children anticipating a Jesse moment when God taps him. And it'll happen. And it will happen. And I want to say to you, King of Kings as a church, invest in the kids' table. How many times I've said here during these weeks and Fred has gotten up and he said, there goes the church. There's half of our congregation. Praise God for that. There does go the church. There goes Christianity in America. There's a whole lot of stuff that walks out of this room when those children leave. Invest in the kids' table because the day's coming when there's going to be a Jesse moment. There will be. In a few weeks, you will have a new pastor. God will honor your process, your prayers. I will be praying for you. My wife will be praying for you. And uh, I pray that God will give you, when he comes, space in places where you can flourish and continue to grow and do all that God wants you to do. And after you get that pastor and as you expand and as God blesses you and you flourish, 
I want you to prioritize the kids' table. Remember that. And I will tell you that you will never, ever regret it. You give them your best. I tried to give them my best in my ministry to one member of my congregation said, well, let's just put crowns on all the kids. I will never regret it. Invest in the kids' table and wait for the Jesse moment. That's what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a challenge out of genealogies. And all of those lives, they were real lives. There were real stories. There were real experiences. And Father, you teach us through every one of them when we know the details. And I pray that as we enter the holidays, whatever we're about, that we'll take these lessons to heart. We'll go to the Benile again and again where you need to deal with us and the Jacob within us. And we praise you through the life of David that you give us the insight into the kids' table, the significance of it, the power of it, the blessing of it. I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for everyone that participates and is a part of this wonderful fellowship, that you will bless them, that you will bless uh, the one that comes, the one who leads. In the future days that are coming, that you will bless that. And we thank you for all of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Brenda and I have enjoyed being with you for these last several weeks, and uh, we wish you, we wish you the very best. And we'll be back to visit and back to to fellowship and worship with you. But we wish you the best as um, we know God is going to do some amazing things here and uh, through you. Thank you.